Hello, welcome back to another installment of Hazmatician Chronicles. I hope everybody is being safe out there, especially with this COVID-19 pandemic going on. Hopefully everybody's heeding the warning of our government officials in the terms of washing your hands for 20 seconds, wearing your proper PPE, and just you know maintaining that, that social distance of at least six feet from people and, and avoiding large gatherings. Hopefully we can eventually straighten that curve, as they say, after a while, and uh, hopefully this will be over soon. But today's topic, we're going to be talking about a chemical called hydrogen sulfide. And hydrogen sulfide has become pretty popular lately in the news for the past few years when it comes to chemical suicides, unfortunately. Uh, it's just a horrible, horrible thing. But again, we're going to be the ones that are responding to these type of calls as either non-hazmat companies or hazmat teams because hydrogen sulfide is a toxic chemical and a flammable chemical on top of it, too. So we're going to talk about a hypothetical type call you might respond to. And this hypothetical call is unconscious person inside a vehicle behind the wheel. And we run these calls all the time. It could be somebody who's overdosed. It could be somebody who's just passed out drunk. So that thought process of, oh, it's just a drunk person passed out behind the wheel. We got to get out of that mindset because it could be a potential chemical suicide, whether it's hydrogen sulfide, carbon monoxide inert gas such as you know helium argon things like that because people do have access to those inert gases and that'll be another episode at a later date is talking about chemical suicides involving your inert gases right now we're going to focus on hydrogen sulfide and with this hydrogen sulfide is known as sewer gas swamp gas stink damp sour damp and it is colorless but it's a very pungent smell of rotten eggs at low concentrations. But if you are going into a environment where it's present and all of a sudden you're like, oh man, it smells like rotten eggs. And then next thing you know, you're like, oh, okay, no, I don't smell it anymore. So it must have dissipated. That's a false sense of security. Reason being is hydrogen sulfide does paralyze your olfactory cranial nerve, which is your smell. So you're going in there, initially you smell that rotten egg, and then all of a sudden you don't. That's probably because your, your olfactory nerve has been desensitized. So you're actually possibly walking further into heavier concentrations, which, depending on the parts per million, may overcome you and you might go unconscious or get dizzy or have any, you might have adverse reaction to it. So again, if we can arrive at that hypothetical call, I said that person passed out behind the wheel. And as we walk around the vehicle, look for certain signs that can tell you that this could be a potential chemical suicide. Look for signs on the window. And the thing is, Hydrogen sulfide with this chemical suicide aspect of it gained prominence from Japan. A lot of people were using household cleaners, toilet bowl cleaners, anything with a sulfur in it, and mixing them together and creating hydrogen sulfide okay, with the chemical reaction, and therefore locking themselves in a vehicle or a small closet or a small room with no ventilation and taking their life. So if we are going on these calls where somebody is in a vehicle, look for any kind of signs taped to the window because there are these websites out there that are basically suicide websites that teach you and tell you what works, what chemicals to mix to make it work. They also have printable notification signs for first responders, basically a skull and crossbone, call 911, toxic gas inside, things like that. You can print it out and tape it to your windows. So Look for that. That's a telltale sign right there. If you see any kind of signage in the vehicle or on the building or windows of a building, things like that. The other thing too is as you approach a vehicle, just like you would for a car accident, how you do an inner and outer circle, while you're walking around the vehicle, look for buckets and any kind of plastic containers or any kind of containers in general 
that look like household chemicals. And if you see like a five gallon bucket or a three gallon bucket or a size bucket with this person who's unconscious in the vehicle, then if you see any kind of like green foam or any kind of like, like calcification around that bucket, that could indicate that they mix something in there in that enclosed vehicle to keep the parts per million very high to take their life quicker. Look for that kind of stuff too, because if you see that in the back seat or in the front seat, that's a telltale sign that there's something that was mixed in the vehicle and therefore you might have toxic gas. So with that said, as first responders, hazmat or not, you want to make sure that you are in full PPE because it is flammable, all right? In full PPE meaning bunker gear. And you want to make sure you're on SCBA because it is highly toxic for inhalation. Now, hydrogen sulfide is the second most common cause of inhalation death. Carbon monoxide is the first one, but then hydrogen sulfide is right behind it. Just keep that in mind. And even though you are in full bunker gear and you have respiratory protection in the form of an SCBA, what you can do as a, as a non-hazmat person is, one, get a hazmat team going because the hazmat team has special monitors and we can monitor hydrogen sulfide because depending on our five gas monitor, we might have that actual sensor. And I can tell you firsthand that my hazmat team, we do have a five gas monitor with hydrogen sulfide sensor in it. So we can come out and monitor. If you know the victim's viable, have your bunker gear on, your SCV on, you can do a line of sight rescue. That's not a problem. You also want to evacuate the area for other civilians and make it safe because yes, most likely the, the concentration of that toxic gas will be at that vehicle or at that building where the incident is occurring, but hydrogen sulfide is heavier than air. So it kind of lays around the ground when you're trying to ventilate. So you don't want other people around that are possible bystanders that could get affected by it. You want to get them as far away as possible. So set up a uh, evacuation perimeter. You want to do decon operations as well. And basically you're going to assist the hazmat team with mitigation of the incident. Now, if you're a first arriving hazmat team with this potential victim, then obviously a line of sight rescue is necessary if the patient is viable. The other thing too is you want to establish your hot and warm zones, and then you want to do your gas monitoring, all right? Your, your air monitoring. If you're able to, you can ventilate the vehicle uh, if it's not already done, and then you want to do decon. Now remember, if the victim is viable, if we remove the clothing, we're basically removing 80 to 90% of the contaminant off of them, okay? But remember, this is more or less a inhalation exposure. Removing the clothing is a great idea just to do it. You never know, but we're dealing more with an inhalation problem. Decon is definitely um, something to think about. All right. Now, like I said, it is heavier than air. So the molecular weight of hydrogen sulfide is 34.08. So we know that molecular weight of air is 29. So anything greater than 29 is going to sink. Anything less than 29 is going to rise. So we obviously know this is going to hang out around the ground. The other thing too is the ideal H is 100 parts per million. So that tells you right there, that's extremely deadly. And because it is flammable, it does have an LEL and a UEL. So the, the range that we're looking at here from LEL to UEL is 4% to 44%. So that's a pretty big range. So you got to be very careful. That's why we say full bunker gear with SCBA on for thermal protection and inhalation protection. It is um, soluble in water, so it mixes. It doesn't layer. And it's classified as a sulfide or a sulfur compound. Now, one thing that I do have here is exposure levels, parts per million, and what the effects are on the body. So I'll just read this off to you. When you have an exposure level that is considered low, meaning parts per million of less than 40 for less than 15 minutes of exposure time, you're looking at eye and mucous membrane irritation, right? So you know something's in the air and you start feeling the effects of it in the mucous membranes of your eyes and whatnot. So that's a good you know, indicator. Hey, I'm too far in with no protection on. Let me back out of here. When we get to an exposure level of moderate, meaning greater than 20 parts per million, 
Now we start getting pulmonary membrane irritation. So pulmonary edema might begin at this point. Okay, so it's irritating the lungs. An exposure level of high, meaning 500 to 400 parts per million, you're going to have a cough, you're going to have dyspnea, you're going to have cyanosis, and you're going to have confusion because now you're having your oxygen cut off. All right, so it's it's affecting your, your breathing at this point. And then an exposure level, level of severe, greater than 500 parts per million, is fatal. Two to three breaths and, and, and you're dead. So that, that's why these individuals, when they do a chemical suicide, they mix it inside an enclosed, non-ventilated car or room or house or whatever to get the effects a lot quicker to end their life. The other thing too is your NFPA 704 placard will have a four in blue, a four in red, a zero in yellow for reactivity and no special notes in the white section. So that tells you right there, four for health and a four for flammability that we are dealing with the highest level of danger here for that 704 placard for any indicators. So that's just one thing to, to remember here. And it's classified as a flammable gas and an inhalation hazard. The other thing to remember too is if you do have a viable VIC and you are removing them, whether you're treating them or you're handing them off to a ambulance crew or whoever that's going to take the patient to the hospital. If you have a tox box, if you're on a hazmat team, for example, you can guide the paramedics. And one thing to remember is what we want to treat them with is amyl nitrate and sodium nitrite. So if you're thinking of the old lily kit that we would use for a cyanide exposure, the amyl nitrate, almost like ammonia inhalants where you break them open and then you want to put them on a piece of gauze, put them underneath the patient's nose and let them try to inhale if they're still breathing for 15 to 30 seconds. And in, in, in between, while you're taken away from them after that 15 or 30 seconds, they should have 100% oxygen on them. So either a non-rebreather, BVM, whatever, but you wanna deliver that oxygen in between the amyl nitrate. And then if you're able to get an IV and start getting your normal saline flowing and the sodium nitrite, you wanna give about 300 milligrams worth of it. Now, what hydrogen sulfide is, it's a systemic asphyxiant. So when we say systemic asphyxiant, that means that it's binding to the hemoglobin. It's preventing the uptake of oxygen, much like carbon monoxide, hydrogen cyanide. Those are all systemic, just like hydrogen sulfide is. And it's preventing oxygen from binding to the cell to help with cellular respiration and normal breathing. The problem is here is we have a sulfur atom that can bind to the hemoglobin readily. And that's what we're dealing with, the hydrogen sulfide. And it's preventing the oxygen uh, from getting on there. And it's knocking the oxygen off. So you're basically having a cellular respiration problem, which in turn affects the whole body. We're trying to use those medications of amyl nitrate and sodium nitrite to knock off that sulfur to get the oxygen back onto the hemoglobin to help us have better cellular respiration and therefore better respiration for our whole body at the end. So that's what we say when we, when we mean a systemic asphyxiant, that it's hitting us right at the cellular level as opposed to a simple asphyxiant like carbon dioxide, which just kind of pushes oxygen out of the room or out of the environment you're in, in high concentrations, replacing it, the oxygen that you normally would breathe healthy-wise in a room or an environment, that inert gas, which is a simple asphyxiant, pushes it out of the room and replaces it with the inert gas. Therefore, that gas is not going to sustain life and therefore that you're going to have a breathing problem or unconsciousness or something like that. So the two extremes of one, you just have to remove out of the environment to an oxygen environment, help breathing. And then the other one is we have to give medication to kind of knock off that chemical that's binding to our, our cells and preventing us to breathe properly. One thing to consider too, when you are dealing with any kind of approach to a vehicle and, and just a couple warning signs here that we can look at, and I kind of mentioned a few already, 
is that smell of rotten egg or sewer gas. And then looking at the patient as well, are they unconscious? Are there multiple victims? Uh, is there tape around the vents and or the, the windows of the vehicle? Are there any kind of suicide notes? Another thing, too, is any kind of posted warning signage, like I mentioned before, on the windows of the vehicle or near it. Any buckets, coolers. No, and it doesn't always have to be a bucket. It could be a cooler. It could be any kind of container that can hold enough of the product when they mix it. And then also, inside or outside of the uh, vehicle, look for any kind of evidence of empty chemical containers. That can be indicative of they might have mixed something in here, and now we have an unconscious person or persons in a vehicle. Now, when you're approaching a building, okay, same kind of concept. Get that smell of rotten eggs to tell you back out, get your gear on, and then get a game plan going to go in and, and begin the assessment of the environment or any victims that are in there. So the smell of rotten egg and sewer gas can be applicable outside of a building as well. The other thing, too, is any kind of signs of poisonous gas or any kind of suicide notes on the doors or windows of that building. And then other people in that building that are complaining of breathing problems. And if you have a large number of people saying, hey, I have a headache, I have breathing problems, you know, their nose and eyes are running and they're coughing, you might have some kind of chemical release in there. So that's one thing to, to realize. Many times the chemical suicides that have occurred, not only in vehicles, but they've occurred in college dorms because the rooms are fairly small, I'm assuming, in certain college dorms. So if they didn't tape the vents leading to other rooms for the air conditioning, then other people that are neighboring to that college dorm or that apartment complex, for example, could feel the effects of the chemicals. So that's one thing to consider too, is do I have a large number of people that are complaining of breathing problems and whatnot from this one building? So anyway, I just wanted to put this out there in particular, hydrogen sulfide. Um, the one thing too, is I wrote an article for Fire Engineering Online, uh, I think back in 2015. I'm going to post it on our FDU Facebook page. So that way you can read it. It's a good read. Um, it's got a lot more information compared to what I went over here. That's just kind of more of like the abridged version of the article that I was just relaying here. Well, we're also going to post a chemical bulletin uh, that was created by our sponsor for our podcast. And our sponsor is Hazmat Advanced Training Solutions. And they've just been, they've been great. They offer the highest quality of hazmat training to fire departments, police departments, private enterprises, and for hospitals on PPE, donning and doffing, hazmat type classes on awareness of chemical suicides. You name it, they do it. And they also do customized classes. So if you have any idea of something that you want delivered to your employees, then give them a call and we'll post their information and they'll, uh, they customize classes and they also do consulting work too. So if you want to come up with an emergency plan for any kind of chemicals or a evacuation type plan, they come up with that as well. So that's one thing uh, that they're really great, but they've been a great sponsor for us on our podcast here. And another thing too is when we've posted these chemical bulletins from them before, and one thing to remember is somebody wrote into me a while back about the chemical bulletin saying, great information, but I think that you putting the chemical formula is pointless. It's useless information. And I want to clear the air on this one. I want to, I want to let you know that the chemical formula that, that are on these chemical bulletins are absolutely not useless information. And I don't know if it's a lack of hazmat training or, or what, but the formula for the chemical is absolutely a necessary thing to have because whether you're reading the NIOSH guidebook, chemical guidebook, or you're on the, the phone app Wiser researching this particular chemical or where, wherever you're at on an emergency call or just training around the station, when I look at the formula, that can tell me so many indications of this chemical. For example, how many bonds do we have? Is it single, double, or triple bonded? If I see double or more bonds, anything that's greater than a single bond should tell you this is a very unstable chemical. 
and that this could be a potentially dangerous chemical just from being double bonded or more. So right there, that tells you something by looking at the formula. The other thing too is I want to look for my char indicators. If I see char, that tells me that we are dealing with a flammable chemical here. So right there, the formula says that we are having a flammable chemical if I have a char indicator. The other one for another just example, and it tells you so much more, but I'm just giving you a couple quick examples, is if I see the word chops in there, or I can spell the word chops in that chemical formula I'm looking at, that tells you right there that you're dealing with an organophosphate, aka you're dealing with a nerve agent. So again, the formula on these chemical bulletins are definitely necessary. That's why they put them on it, because just looking at the formula, before you even get all to the other fancy stuff of the molecular weight, the solubility, the IDLH, the DOT number, looking for P after it to see if it polymerizes or not. But when I look at that formula, I just gave a couple quick examples of what it just told me, okay? The stability of the chemical, the flammability of it or not, or are we dealing with a, for example, a nerve agent? So it's definitely something I wanted to clear up. It, it, they wrote into me like last year and I had been meaning to talk about it and I just popped into my head today to do that. So I just wanted to clear the air on that. So it is very important. Thank you for listening. Hopefully uh, again, you're staying safe out there and we're going to be working on some other podcasts. We're working on a fire department university podcast right now. Unfortunately, because of the social distancing, we can't actually meet face to face myself and my co-host. So we're working on some, you know, Skype, Zoom. We're trying a couple of different avenues out to see which one sounds better and which is more user friendly. And we'll be doing our podcast from from our own houses, basically. But, you know, we'll be able to get them out there and hopefully they'll work. But we're still working on it right now, testing a couple of things out. If you have any questions or comments, please write into us on Facebook. And we're posting this on the Fire Department University Facebook page, but we use Podbean as our hosting app where we upload all of our podcasts. So if you haven't downloaded Podbean, definitely do that. That way you can get updates on it and like us too. That way, anytime I post something new on our podcast page, you'll get the notification. The other thing too is uh, if you, we're on Stitcher, iTunes, iHeartRadio. We're on all the major podcast outlets. So if you're self-quarantining, definitely uh, follow us and, and we'll give you some, some good information and good entertainment. So anyway, stay safe out there. We'll see you on the next installment of the Hazmatician Chronicles. Have a good one.